This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no feed to subscribe, as we'll see. This is the news from Grand Rapids, and this is an episode that is a little uh, a little lighter, a little shorter. I always say that before I start recording them, and then they're never how I think they're going to turn out, but um, it's not as heavy as Sherry Schreiner. It's not as involved as the contactees we're going to be looking at in the next couple episodes. This is a romp through some 1956 issues of Euphorum, the newsletter of the Grand Rapids Saucer Club. Um, The Archives for the Unexplained, as usual, has an extensive collection of issues of Euphorum starting in mid-1956 through, uh, I think, 1957, maybe 1958. We're going to look at some of those 1956 issues today. Along the way, we're going to be seeing some old friends. As I mentioned in the show notes, Gray Barker makes an appearance. There's a mention of the Flatwoods monster and a separate monster story, which is a lot of fun. We also see George Hunt Williamson showing up and um, basically, I don't want to say jumpstarting or initiating, but at least foreshadowing some of the uh, other non-UFO conspiracy theories that would gain prominence even among UFO types in uh, the later 20th century. And if you don't remember Buck Nelson from our episode, uh, Me and You and a Dog Named Bo, back uh, a couple years ago, we're going to see Buck Nelson. And, and if you'll recall, if you did hear that episode, there was a Michigan connection to him. So that's why he shows up. So let's jump into Euphorum, which is a great name for a magazine, isn't it? Euphorum. UFO all capitalized. Rum, not. Anyway, let's go. We're going to start off with the earliest issue of Euphorum that is uh, that is in the AFU archive, and it's June 1956, Volume One, Number Four. And on the masthead page, Euphorum is spelled U-F-O-R-U-M, but the the O is either a flying saucer or a sort of ringed planet like Saturn. It's it's not entirely clear. But it is fun, right? Anytime you've got a letter shaped like something that it's not, that's, I mean, that's, that's a good time. I don't care who you are. So on the intro page, we've got a description of the magazine. Euphorum is a monthly publication of the Grand Rapids Flying Saucer Club, a nonprofit educational organization. Any original article appearing herein may be reproduced by any other saucer publication if credit is given to Euphorum. And then in all caps, all saucer sightings or experiences are welcomed. There's an unnecessary space and then three, count them, three exclamation points. I love that. That's, I'll, I'll take this over, um, over just about anything, really. So there's three co-editors, Art Gibson, Bob Hillary, and uh, Don Plank. Their West State reporter out of Grand Haven is C.L. Myers. Their South State reporter out of Kalamazoo is E, I think it's, it's unclear here with the printing, E.W., Meyer of Kalamazoo. So yes, it's a, a West state and a South state and, and you know, they're based in Grand Rapids. If you were to look at a map of Michigan, you would notice that the Grand Rapids Flying Saucer Club, their sort of catchment area is, is very much on that, that Western side of the state. So just having a West state reporter, it's basically somebody just right on the, the shores of Lake Michigan because Kalamazoo is, is, you know, escapes far enough out of, you know, sort of the central area to be Western Michigan, which which makes sense. There were other, as we'll see, probably other flying saucer organizations that handled other things like the Detroit metro area and things like that. So the next thing here on this front page, and no, don't worry, we're not going to go through it page by page, but I'm sort of giving you some some scenery and some context for what their position on things here is. So the next thing is a list of suggested periodical readings. And a lot of newsletters had this because they it was very much a cooperative 
sort of thing, not in a formal sense of being a, a co-op or something like that. But, you know, newsletters would trade issues with each other. It was more like a fanzine sort of scene than a, a competitive publication market. So they suggest things like the, the ones that jump out to me are um, Borderland Science Research Associates newsletter. They they put that on their list. The Talonic Research Bulletin from the Talonic Research Center in Prescott, Arizona. That might jump out at you as being George Hunt Williamson's outfit. And there's other things, you know, uh, clipping services like the Little Listening Post, um, the uh, Flying Saucer Review out of uh, the United Kingdom, which we've covered at various times and in various ways. So it's very much a broad approach. And as we'll see, this is this is early on in ufology. This is 1956. This is even, as we're going to see, really pre-NICAP becoming a national force. And that's going to be interesting. There's a little sort of something about that coming up later here in 1956. So then we move on to a letter the editors have received from Mrs. Sherman Lowry, in Clarkston, Michigan. And if you know her at all, you probably know her as Fanny Lowry. And she is the sort of connection between Buck Nelson of Missouri and the wider world of flying saucerdom. And in this letter, she talks about how they have visited Buck Nelson and heard his story out in Missouri. He spoke in Detroit in 1955. And in 1956, they're going to be bringing him back to Michigan and he will be touring and things. And, and they've enclosed a drawing that uh, Buck Nelson sent to her. Uh, it was too light for newsprint, but it would be all right for a different type of paper. It's reproduced here and it looks like I'll put it up on social media. Uh, so check our Instagram feed and, and, and Facebook and Twitter for it. I, um, I don't know how to describe the picture as being anything but um, phallic. And what it is, it's a tracing of a photograph, which is weird. I'm not sure why that's a, a great thing, but it's, it's basically Buck Nelson said, I took a photograph of a spaceship, but it was too light. It didn't turn out, but I was able to, to, to sort of trace it out on paper for better reproduction in newspapers and, and magazines, which is possibly the the worst sort of hoaxed photograph thing I've I've ever seen. Also in this letter, they they print uh, Bucky's Christmas message, Bucky from Venus, who was Buck's cousin. We'll hear more about that later. You heard the um, the Christmas message in our uh, our I almost said Buck Owens, the country music singer, in our Buck Nelson episode, and, and we'll be incorporating that recording into some things a little bit later in this episode. But but here we have we have Buck No Buck Owens Buck Nelson coming out and uh, and making an appearance thanks to Mrs. Sherman Lowry. On to more conventional saucer things. There are a lot of stories sort of reprinted from other newsletters, uh, such as Ray Stanford's story about the San Padre Island saucer. There is uh, a report of a you know, supposedly radio signals coming from Venus reported by uh, the Ohio State University Radio Observatory. But there are also a lot of sighting reports, sometimes drawn from newspaper accounts, sometimes drawn from AP wire accounts, sometimes directly reported to the editors and their people from local Western Michigan uh, residents. And the level of detail in these is, is very astounding, almost, um, almost unbelievable sometimes. I was driving along M37 between Caledonia and Middleville at about 7.15 p.m. on Friday, May 4th, 1956, when just before reaching the 90-degree turn left to Middleville, my son, who was riding with me, yelled at me to stop the car and take a look at the thing he had seen in the sky. When I stopped the car, it was between 7.15 and 7.20 p.m. I looked up into the western sky and saw the very bright white light which had caught my son's eye. At first, it appeared to be a jet vapor trail, but it was the shortest one I had ever seen. Then I noticed that unlike a jet vapor trail, it was tapered at both ends with no fuzzing visible at either end. Both ends were rounded and there was no plane visible at either end. There was good definition and although the light was quite bright, it was hard to tell whether the brightness came from the object itself or from the setting sun which was backlighting it. The sun was near to setting. The sun set at 745 to 746 on May 4th and the light maintained its position relative to the sun all the time we observed it. The sun was in the straight west, and the object was at about 10 o'clock in relation to the sun and was at a distance from the sun of two hand spans with hand held at arm's length. 
The object itself appeared to be about the size of my hand, held at arm's length sideways, and looked nebulous, like a jet vapor trail. It had no hard outline, but was shaped somewhat like a cucumber standing on end, and it had a halation effect around the edges. So that report struck me as being particularly detailed in an interesting way, and, and very much in keeping with sort of reporting standards like, well, what was the size of it relative to your your hand that was up in the sky? You know, things like that. There's another report from a truck driver that exhibits a similar level of um, of detail. And this is, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, from a newspaper report rather than being reported directly to the, uh, the organization itself. Mr. Austin Angel of 318 Lafayette, Grand Haven, Michigan, is a truck driver for the West Michigan Steel Foundry Company. As Mr. Angel passed Holland on his way home from a trip to Danville, Illinois, he looked into the west to see the setting sun. It was 7.35 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the evening of May 4, 1956. Angel's eye was immediately attracted to the very bright white object to the left of and above the near to setting sun. The sight was so unusual that he pulled the truck to the side of the road at the railroad overpass on US 31, just north of the M21 junction. Mr. Angel was quick to state that it takes a lot to make him stop when he is within 25 miles of home and the weekend, but that this was something entirely new to his eyes. The object appeared several times larger than does the planet Venus at its brightest. It also was much brighter, so brilliant that it bothered one's eyes to look at it for any length of time. From Angel's description, it seems that the object was wedge-shaped, broad at one end, and tapering to a point at the other. He referred to the pointed end as the tail, although the object did not seem to travel any measurable distance in the twenty-odd minutes of the sighting. It did appear to get much smaller, which Angel interpreted as evidence that the object was moving away from him. The tail, or point, changed its direction several times, from straight up to north and then to south. The object was 20 to 25 degrees high in elevation, and if the sun were directly west, it would be approximately west-southwest from this viewpoint. Mr. Angel watched it for some 15 minutes, and then again started driving north, still watching the object. At 7.55 p.m., while he was still watching, the strange object just disappeared. It did not fade out or speed away. It vanished or at least the brilliant light was no longer visible. Angel expressed surprise that the many people driving by in cars did not seem to see the object. It was impossible not to notice it if one looked at the sunset. Any opinion of what he saw was withheld by Angel, and since he had no information, he felt that a guess would be useless. He did feel that possibly the Air Force knew all about these things, and that they thought it best not to reveal it to the public. Well, I don't know exactly what it is, and I don't have any good information, but I'm pretty sure the Air Force knows what it is, and they're keeping it from the public. This is the most UFO thing, um, possibly, ever. Um, already, in 1956, the, the idea that the government, in some form, was hiding everything was, was well and truly entrenched. So in the next issue, the July issue, there's some interesting stuff as well. First of all, we have this shocking announcement. We have official confirmation of the extraterrestrial nature of UFOs. I mean, gosh, what are we all still doing here? The mystery was solved in 56. Flying saucers are real, says VIP. The Flying Saucer Review of London, England states that in an interview with their correspondent in Mexico, an American VIP revealed that saucers were manned by visitors from another planet were friendly, and that they were undoubtedly trying to work out a method of remaining alive in our atmosphere before landing and establishing friendly communications. Asked why the Air Force had so vehemently denied their existence, this VIP said the U.S. wants her people to concentrate on the real menace, communism, with no distractions from outer space. If this incident happened at all, and I have my, my doubts about that, it almost sounds like a VIP sort of humorously brushing off a question about flying saucers. Um, why isn't the Air Force, you know, doing anything about it? Well, we're we're really kind of worried about communism now. Please go away. So that's one interesting thing. Another interesting thing is we've got the uh, the establishment, basically, or the um, sort of growth of the Michigan Flying Saucer Federation, which was begun, I believe, or at least a prime mover, and it was Laura Markser, or Laura Mundo, as she was um, later known, who was uh, in charge of the Interplanetary Foundation of Detroit. And we've talked about Laura Markser slash Laura Mundo before, her connection to bringing George Adamski to Detroit and things like that. 
we've got news of the uh, the fact they've brought the motion picture unidentified flying objects to the uh, to the Broadway Capitol Theater in Detroit. We have a list of pamphlets that are for sale, such as um, The World Tomorrow, uh, George Adamski's lecture from September 20th, 1955, Saucers, Simple as ABC by Laura Markser, um, Private Group Lecture by George Adamski um, from May 4th, 1955. That's a dollar. Not very private if you can read the whole thing in a pamphlet. Uh, Whirling Wheels, Saucers in the Bible by Reverend John Miller, 50 cents. Uh, Saucers and Flying Saucers and Religion, a, a lecture by Adamski in Detroit on September 19th, 1955. And um, the Minister's Conference, at which Adamski challenged the clergy to investigate the Flying Saucer, September 18th. 1955. Uh, that one's a dollar, a nickel each for mailing. The Michigan UFO um, or Michigan Flying Saucer, rather, Federation also uh, comprises the Grand Rapids Flying Saucer Club, the Kalamazoo Flying Saucer Study Group, the Detroit Flying Saucer Club, and um, the Flying Saucer Research Club of Benton Harbor, the Plainwell Flying Saucer Club of Plainwell, Battle Creek Flying Saucer Club, and the Michigan Flying Saucer Federation, so I think it was sort of run out of um, out of Battle Creek. So again, this is you know a small area, but it sort of gives you an idea of the way that that saucer clubs and saucer and I, I will continue to use this saucer fandom in the fifties was organizing itself. Also, and I if I remember, I will put a link in the show notes. Um, Detroit Flying Saucer and Weirdness lecturer and authority and really all-around very cool guy, John E.L. Tenney, has a number of um, stickers and things and t-shirts and things for sale, including some stickers of old logos of some of these organizations, including a sticker based on a lapel pin that the Grand Rapids Flying Saucer Club um, uh, you know, sold through their newsletter. I'm going to put that link uh, to that site in the show notes. And one last thing from this July issue, we have the mysterious Marshall Monster from Marshall, Michigan, which is, if you look at a map, it's south of Lansing, Michigan, and east of Battle Creek. It's right about where today, uh, Interstate 69 and Interstate 94 sort of, uh, I was going to say collide, intersect. That's what roads do, right? They intersect. They don't collide. So this is, uh, this is a, a sort of cryptozoological thing showing up in a saucer newsletter, which is, which is fun and the sort of thing you could do more of in 1956 than you could in, say, 1966. This one's long, but it's, uh, it's interesting, I think. Perhaps this story has no place in a saucer magazine, but due to the similarity between this story and monsters that have been reported near flying saucers, we have investigated the recent report of a hairy monster seen in the Marshall area. The following story, edited for the sake of brevity, appeared in the Marshall Evening Chronicle of June 14, 1956. When initial reports of the Wilder Creek monster filtered out nearly a month ago, it touched off whispers which have carried across Calhoun County. The whispers have resulted in the twisting of the original report. The area where it was allegedly spotted has been changed. The nationality of the men who were picked up by the snarling beast has been altered. And some people contend that the whole incident is the figment of an overwrought imagination. But three Marshall-area young men will swear that their story is not fiction. One was so shocked by the event he broke down and cried. It happened on a Saturday night about a month ago when brothers Herman and Philip Williams, part Indian, and their friend Otto Collins, 20, a full-blooded Indian, returned home from dates in Marshall. The three stopped off at a local coffee shop and then drove their 1949 car to their home, southeast of Marshall, just past Wilder Creek. The time was about 11.30 p.m. Philip, 17, stopping outside of the one-story building for a breath of fresh air, saw something big and ran to tell the other two. While Herman, 20, searched for a shotgun, Otto and Philip went outside. Evidently, it was behind us, Philip said. He told of feeling arms wrapping around him and of thinking it was his friend fooling around. Then he felt himself being hoisted off the ground. We couldn't see it. It was dark. It had big green eyes that were as big as light bulbs. They were enough to scare you to death. Herman, who couldn't find his gun, ran out of the building and saw the creature toting the two boys, who have a combined weight of around 300 pounds, down a dirt road that leads off the Homer Road, past the front door of the house, and through an abandoned village of some 22 huts. Herman flicked on the car lights and turned the car around. All this time, one or both of the boys had been screaming. 
When the lights hit the monster, it veered from the flat stretch surrounding the eastern end of the house and brushed a table, losing its balance and its grip on Otto, who landed in an upright position. Otto then pushed the beast, causing it to lose its balance again, thus releasing Philip. It stood there and watched us, probably wondered what we were, Philip recalled. The three boys described their experience to their employer, who informed sheriff's deputies. So frightened were the young men that they vacated their three-room residence and now occupy one room. Herman reported, I don't know what it was, but it was something. Philip added, It could have killed us if it wanted to. The boys returned to the area with a dog the first part of the week following the incident. It appeared nervous when they kicked at what appeared to be footprints in the grass. Sheriff's deputies, who might be expected to scoff at reports of monsters, nonetheless set with sawed-off shotguns in the area for three nights, but found no trace of the green-eyed monster. Your editor was unable to interview the brothers personally, but he talked to friends and saucer investigators in Kalamazoo who did talk to the boys. They added the boys seemed to be telling the truth, and as far as they were concerned, were very sincere about the whole affair, and seemed genuinely scared. The Kalamazoo group went to the scene of this incident. They were told the woods along Wilder Creek were an impenetrable tangle of trees and bushes, which would make a thorough search of the area an impossibility even in the winter months. The Kalamazoo people gathered the following information from their interview in Marshall. The sheriff was rather hostile towards them and preferred not to discuss the incident. The boys gauged the height of the monster at near 10 feet. They had a glimpse of him in the car lights as he stood near the house and were able to compare his size to that of the house. The boys said the monster had hands instead of paws and claws. He had one of the boy's jaws shut with a huge hand, which gripped both chin and the top of his head at once. When one of the boys started to scream, the creature throttled him with his huge hand. When asked if the thing had an odor, the boys said that it had a rather strong odor that smelled like spoiled meat. This is interesting, because the monsters in several saucer stories have had a similar odor about them. Kehoe reported the tale of two South American Indian boys who encountered a monster near an object that looked like a spaceship. The monster grabbed one of the boys and started off with him, while the other boy broke his most prized possession, his rifle, on the monster in an effort to free his companion. His struggle was a success, and the boy was dropped by the evil-smelling creature. When the boys showed their bruises and told their story to authorities, they were locked up for drunkenness, but were later released. Gray Barker, author of They Knew Too Much About the Flying Saucers, has written to the Marshall Chronicle and intends to investigate the matter. Yes, I am aware it's They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. No, the. Uh, that was as printed in Euphorum. It will not be the last time it is printed like that in Euphorum. We will hear more about Gray Barker and a mention of the Marshall Monster later, or the Wilder Creek Monster, um, things like that. So, as it is sometimes called. Now, I do not know hardly anything hardly i do not know anything more about the marshall monster than is um than is printed here uh, in euphorum there are probably people out there who are more you know into the cryptozoological scene that know more about this uh, i welcome uh, i welcome in your comments and insight to me being a dang dirty skeptic, uh, this uh, this sounds this sounds fake as hell, but incredibly incredibly entertaining. Especially the monster picking up these these two hundred fifty pound guys and uh, and running around with them until sort of like lightly harassed, and then he he drops them. So it's a it's a good story, and in the end, that's what uh, that's really what I like about these things when you have uh, when you have good stories rather than just sort of i mean i think this is much less plausible than the sighting reports that we saw in the earlier issue but this is much more entertaining than i stood in my yard and or next to my car and the light w looked like a jet trail but wasn't and was x percentage of the width of my hand as it was outstretched yes that might be much sort of better data perhaps but it's not as fun as a, a sort of bug-eyed, hairy monster that smells like rotting meat, you know, carrying guys around the woods. Um, that's just me, though. Next time, it's back to Contacty Madness with Contact from Iarga. You can check out past episodes and read some reviews of saucer-related stuff that's, uh, that's around there. I need to review some more stuff. And you can also support the show at saucerlife.com. We do rely on your donations rather than uh, advertising um, 
or merchandise. We don't have any merchandise. I have toyed with the idea of a line of merchandise that nobody will ever buy. Um, things like copies of the show on audio cassette tape that I sell. Um, I don't know why I was talking to some friends and I was like, this is this, if I ever do merchandise, it's going to be something completely impractical like cassette tapes. Um, Thank you very much to those who've donated and supported the show in the past. Um, We would not be doing this without, we would not be doing this without that. Um, Or we would be, but it would be coming out much less frequently and I would have much less enthusiasm because um, you don't want things to cost you too much money, right? Um, Anyway, thank you so much. Uh, As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life. Um, Our email is thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by by paper mail at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blanc, Michigan, 48480. you can do that. I need to go. I need to go check the post office box. Actually, um, have gotten some stuff. I need to do a little segment on things I've gotten. I keep forgetting to do that. Anyway, back to uh, back to you forum. Okay, now the August issue of Euphorum, August 1956, has a lot of sighting reports from all over Michigan, and they are, you know, here's one from um, Berrien Springs. An unidentified resident reported spotting a huge fireball the size of the moon trailing a two-engined aircraft before 2 a.m. It's from the Benton Harbor News Palladium. Most of these are they're Michigan stories, but they're printed from newspapers. They're sort of sourced from other flying saucer magazines. And the bulk of the August issue is made up of these sightings. And then it moves from Michigan to sightings in general, sort of the first half of 1956. And I thought about sort of, you know, recording and capturing some of these and presenting them, but they, they all, they all get very samey after a while. I've had two sort of detailed, you know, flying saucer reports. And, uh, I think that's enough for a flying saucer podcast and uh, we can move on to uh, to other things such as the uh, the September 1956 issue which starts off with a just heck of a bombshell of a story it's it's headed the silence group and Siberia USA and what this is all about, and, and this is very strange. I mean, this is this is a weird thing. I was not expecting this. I'm not, I don't think I'm hyping this up too weirdly when you hear what this is, but they sort of head it with, uh, with this. The Silence Group and Siberia, USA. Euphorum has no opinion on the following controversy, but merely reprints for your information excerpts from two articles on the House of Representatives Bill 6376, known in some quarters as Siberia, USA. Rick Williamson, publisher of Talonic Research Bulletin, attacks this bill in his July-September issue. Priscilla Buckley defends this controversial bill in the July 25, 1956 issue of National Review. Gray Barker, in his book They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, suggests that there is a group at work representing no government agency that wants saucer investigation stopped. What? Yes, that Rick Williamson is George Hunt Williamson. And Priscilla Buckley and um, the issue of National Review is the National Review, the well-known, sort of well-established, but very kind of new at that point, conservative magazine uh, established by Priscilla's brother, William F. Buckley Jr., sort of the the, the daddy of modern post-World War II conservatism. So Siberia, USA, this bill, what? the heck is going on this is what and this is excerpted in um in euphorum this is what george hunt williamson has to say about this all governments are under the control of the international bankers who also control all money and thus create depression and prosperity wherever they find it they want and need a divided world so that wars may continue and their wealth steadily increase Every king, president, or dictator on earth is only a figurehead, a tool of the hidden empire. These secret world rulers will never allow official UFO announcements to be made to the public. If the technology of the space visitors is revealed, it will eliminate the need for all oil, gas, automobiles, and practically everything else that keeps every family in America on a credit-buying spree until they're deposited six feet under. 
In Russia, homes are entered in the early hours of the morning and the unwilling occupants who have somehow offended the powers that be are dragged away from the security of their own families to be placed in faraway institutions for the insane. Now the bankers are bold enough to attempt the very same thing in America. So this is very strange, isn't it? What the heck is going on here? Now we know that, you know, Williamson had some strange sort of uh, sort of friends. He was hooked up with William Dudley Pelly of the uh, the Silver Shirts, which was a uh, sort of right wing fascist style group in the United States in the 1930s. And um, it's very much in line with that sort of train of thought, talking about the international bankers and things like that. But more to the point for our sake, what is this what is this Siberia USA thing? What is this bill? What is it what does it do? This bill provides for and designates one million acres in Alaska for the establishment of a hospital for the mentally ill, an insane asylum. One million acres is a rather large piece of ground to house the approximately three hundred fifty known mental cases in Alaska. The subtle wording of this bill makes it appear on the surface as a piece of philanthropic legislation, but a careful study reveals it to be vicious and against the basic rights of man. For instance, a mentally ill individual is defined in section 101, subsection 1, as follows, quote, an individual having a psychiatric or other disease which subsequently impairs his mental health or an individual who is mentally defective. This is a rather broad definition. This bill gives the individual citizen no say whatsoever. He can be dragged from his home on the flimsiest excuse. Newspapers are keeping quiet about H.R. 6376, just as they are quiet about saucers. Pressure has been exerted from the bankers. Are innocent, mentally well Americans to be railroaded into an Arctic insane asylum? So all of this is really only... You know, narrowly tangentially connected to the flying saucer thing the 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 notion the idea being i said i say notion too much the idea being that um flying saucer believers will be among those declared to be mentally def- defective or deficient or ill and herded off to an insane asylum um that covers a million acres in uh in alaska so i we're not gonna you know look in depth at priscilla buckley's you know, defense of this controversial bill. But, you know, if if um, a conservative outfit like the National Review is in favor of, you know, this kind of massive sort of federal government power, then, um, you know, it's probably, you know, not as controversial as people think. And basically, uh, Priscilla Buckley's defense boils down to the fact that that one sort of in terms of federal power alaska is not a state alaska is a territory even though everybody's pretty sure it's going to be a state pretty soon but but alaska doesn't really have the infrastructure to deal with the mental health issues that alaska has and another defense of um of 63 6376 which which did pass that it all it all went through as far as i can remember is that Although it authorizes the sale of a million acres or turning over a million acres of federal land for this, it is not a million acre mental hospital or psychiatric hospital. That's not what it is. It's the proceeds from the sale of the land that will fund this mental health system, which is a very different thing. But Buckley points out in her defense of this that the rhetoric surrounding this had gotten so paranoid and crazy that, that everybody sort of lost sight of the actual issues being addressed and Alaska's need for this. Because at the time, if I recall correctly from the article I read, because I didn't want to get all into, and now we look at the National Review from 1956, although that, you know, doing that would be very sort of on brand. Let's look at this unrelated magazine first for some information. But basically the situation was for psychiatric treatment, far too many people in Alaska had to go to Washington state to get psychiatric care. And that is just as Alaska's population was growing, that that's an unsustainable thing. So this was a bill to establish a way to fund mental health care in the Alaska territory without it being you know, an additional sort of sort of budget item. There's like Alaska was like like 88 percent federal land or something like that, probably more at the time. So the the, the you know, federal government simply you know, peels off a bunch of acres, sells it, 
and you know to people who want to buy it and then the money is used to fund it's sort of a revenue if not revenue neutral then revenue nifty sort of i'm not an economist (laughs) by the way revenue nifty sort of thing but what we do see williamson doing here is setting up this idea of internment camps for those who are not in line with what the government is doing drawing that parallel between what the united states government might be doing and what the stalinist regime was doing or what the nazi regime had done often on extremely spurious grounds so that's a thread that if not necessarily just a ufo thread is something that would run through american conspiracism for a long time to come moving on now to november of 1956 we've got a number of interesting things going on here we've got ufos showing up at the kent county airport in uh, in michigan near uh, they're they're on the west side of the state we've got some other interesting um, stories as well such as this one from California via London coming to us in a UFO newsletter from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Was the saucer there or wasn't it? The Associated Press quoted the London Empire News of September 25th that the saucers would attempt to contact the Earth at a point in California on November 7th. The story is quoted in part as follows. According to the Empire News, British flying saucer experts claimed the saucers were to come down to 10,000 feet over California on the 7th of November. The paper said that the radio station KATY at San Luis Obispo has agreed to go off the air on the 7th to listen for the message. So apparently, some scientists in London had apparently said a Martian spaceship would fly over San Luis Obispo that night and... um, they, the city of San Luis Obispo organized a flying saucer day to welcome them. I can only, I can only imagine that nothing happened. That's speculation on my part, but I think that might be what's going on. Also, we have a special visitor in Michigan, a special visitor to Detroit. Gray Barker talks to Michigan Flying Saucer Federation Convention. The second meeting of the Michigan Flying Saucer Federation convened at the headquarters of the Interplanetary Relations Group of Detroit. IR furnished food and lodging for all the delegates at the headquarters building at 90 Pingree Street. The convention was a two-day affair, starting on Saturday, September 22nd, and closing the next afternoon. The Saturday meeting was covered by your U-Forum editor, Art Gibson. The next convention is scheduled for Grand Rapids early next year, and Grand Rapids saucerites will really have to work hard to match the program and hospitality of interplanetary relations. At the business session Saturday afternoon, the delegates discussed whether or not to join the recently formed National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. It was decided that the Federation would wait for further information before making any decision. This was due to the lack of information and the relatively high membership fees charged by the national organization. NICAP requested $15 from individuals and $1,000 from clubs for charter membership. NICAP was created in Washington, D.C. to serve as a national clearinghouse and library for the examination, validation, and registration of aerial phenomena. The work of the committee will be divided into 10 sections and 10 subcommittees covering all phases of aerial phenomena. The Board of Governors has not, to our knowledge, been announced, but is to be made up of persons of national prominence. Saturday night, the Federation members heard Gray Barker talk about his book, They Knew Too Much About the Flying Saucers, and his investigations at the Detroit Institute of Arts. Barker reviewed his book for those who were not familiar with it, but had very little to add to the saucer picture besides that. They seem to be throwing a little bit of shade at gray barker there sort of implying that uh, if you've already read they knew too much about the flying saucers that uh, the talk wasn't really very enlightening but something else that's going on there is this sort of debate or discussion about whether or not the uh, the michigan state organizations should should join nicap as charter members and i don't think i was aware of how much that cost to be an institutional member of NICAP, which basically means you are doing all of your usual research and just giving it to NICAP. Um, little Donnie Kehoe was no, was no fool. So a thousand dollars 
1956. What is that in 2020 money? Well, going to the uh, the inflation calculator that we uh, we use the at, at uh, West Egg Google West Egg inflation calculator to check these numbers for yourself. What cost a thousand dollars in 1956? In 2020, since it's the most recent full year we have data for, would have cost $9,600. Imagine you are a coalition of local saucer clubs and you want to be part of the National Investigating Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. You're coughing up close to 10 grand to do that. That is, that, that's, that's a, that's a heck of a grift, Kehoe. That's, good stuff. Now this might have been before Kehoe was really, you know, in charge, but if you ask him, he was always sort of the one in charge. Now, something else that happened during Gray Barker's talk, going back to to Gray Barker, is that there was a question and answer session there. And what's really interesting is we were able to do some digging on the uh, the internet and find a recording of that. Now, it's we've had to had to clean it up a little bit, had to repair some of the some of the damage to it. But here is the uh, here is the recording and, and the text of the questions and answers were printed in the newsletter. So if you want to sort of compare it against that, you can uh, you can, of course, do that. The links to these newsletters are in the show notes, but we were able to unearth a recording. All right. I think we have time to take some questions. Uh, you miss over there. What's your opinion of flying saucers? I haven't formed any definite opinion, but I favor the idea that flying saucers come from space in our system or some other system. Possibly some come from other dimensions. Uh, yes, the uh, other young lady near the back. Uh, yeah, did you investigate the Brush Creek monster? I, uh, I did not personally investigate that case. Yes, you, sir, what's your question? When do you expect saucer sightings to hit a peak? I expect the peak to come in, um, mid-October. Uh, ma'am, yes. Has there been any change in Air Force thinking towards saucers in the last year? There has been no visible change in Air Force policy. The Air Force won't definitely state that UFOs are not interplanetary. Uh, yes, lady at the back again. Did only people possessing fragments of UFOs have visits paid to them by the men in black? Well, either fragments or some other evidence has been grounds for a visit from the three men. You look like you have a follow-up question, ma'am. Will Bender ever reveal his experiences? I don't know. I will be the first to know if he does. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Sir, sir, do you, you have another question? How does the Marshall monster story compare with the Flatwoods monster story? Well, witnesses to the sightings of the two monsters said there was a very strong odor about each and that they seemed to glide along the ground as though their feet were not even touching. When asked to imitate the movement, witnesses said that it would be impossible for a human being to do so. So that's what I have. Um, thank you very much for, uh, for having me here in your fine town. See, it's amazing what you can find if you just do a little research out on the internet. You can find all sorts of of amazing old UFO audio. You know that I'm kidding, right? Don't email me and say, you know, I think that was modern. I recognize those voices from other episodes. Yes, yes, we know. Play along, okay? So finally, from the uh, November issue is this little story. This is interesting. You don't usually think of this sort of thing that we're going to hear happening um, this early, but it did. Saucer cattle napping reported in Idaho. Idaho, my favorite state, has more distinctions and firsts than I can list without the aid of the Chamber of Commerce. It makes me very happy to report that she is still in the vanguard. For Idaho, where everything is up to date, has just recorded the world's first instance of cattle rustling via flying saucer. Only last weekend, a flying saucer put the snatch on a 400-pound steer at a ranch 40 miles south of Twin Falls. At least the steer, bigger than life and twice as frisky, was there one minute and gone the next split second, just after a flying saucer, 200 feet in diameter, settled in the vicinity. There are three witnesses to this lawless steer napping. 
E.L. Rayburn, prominent Twin Falls attorney, owner of the ranch and the luckless steer, and two employees, Joe and Dick Parker, saw the flying saucer make the snatch. Then the object sped off like a streak of light and the steer was gone, Mr. Rayburn told the sheriff of Twin Falls County. Both the attorney and his two employees realized at once they were dealing with new type rustlers and that it was useless to saddle up and try to head them off at the pass. The up-to-date rustler operating from a flying saucer is a new and unsolved hazard to the cattlemen. This is surely a challenge to latter-day Wyatt Earps. But however serious this new threat may be to the cattleman and his right hand, the cow poke, this steer napping near Twin Falls will give invaluable knowledge to the serious students of flying saucers. For the first time, it is authoritatively proved that the crew and passengers of such saucers are carnivorous. Well, that seems the most reasonable explanation. A little tongue-in-cheek, but um, here we have a an early UFO cattle abduction. Not quite mutilation, but, you know, it's the same sort of idea. We'll close this uh, ramble through Euphorum with uh, more Buck Nelson from the December 1956 issue. Um, this is fun. I love Buck Nelson. Buck Nelson is great. Go listen to our um, Buck Nelson episode, Me and You and a Dog Named Bo, when you have a chance. But here's more about Buck Nelson. Euphorum has just published Buck Nelson's story of his trip to Mars, the Moon, and Venus. For those of you who may have wondered what had happened at Euphorum for the last two months, we apologize for the delay, but the publication of Buck Nelson's story occupied all of our rather limited resources for the better part of two months. In his book, Buck tells of his early life, his first contacts with the spacemen. Then after he became acquainted with them over a period of time, Buck relates how they invited him to take a space trip with them. Before he took off into space, Buck was given the Venusians' 12 Laws of God, which they asked him to write down. After all the preliminaries were completed, Buck was whisked off the Earth in the Venusian saucer-like spacecraft. The first stop was Mars, after which they headed for our moon. Buck states that both Mars and the moon are inhabited. After a short sojourn on the moon, Buck and his space friends headed for Venus, the craft's home base. On Venus, the home of Bucky, Buck meets some important dignitaries, was fed, and then returned to the Earth. Bucky, who turns out to be a distant cousin of Buck's, visits Buck on the Christmas day following the trip and leaves a tape recording, Bucky's Christmas Message to the World. I wish to tell all a Merry Christmas, and especially thank Fanny Lowry for her card. Also give her the answer to her question, yes, it has happened to our ships, torn apart for souvenirs. I appreciate such gifts, and I know that the giver does not expect anything in return, as we cannot exchange gifts with this earth. Many know the reason. Buck here can tell all that ask. We'll tell you why I am here. I have just returned from California, then on to see my folks in Colorado. Now here to see you, Buck, and tell the world in this tape recording that this world must give up atomic weapons and warfare. The next war, if fought, will be on American soil. America will be destroyed, then civilization all over the world will be destroyed. We are here to see which way this world will use atomic power for peace or for war. We have stood by and seen other planets, one other, destroy itself. Is this world next? We wonder and watch and wait. Again I say, give up your atomic weapons and may peace be on this earth. I will tell Buck much more that he can tell the world. I know that Buck will want my time here to be spent in a private, home-like way, and I also desire it that way, so must say goodbye to all the world. Buck Nelson answered many questions about his trip. A foreword and postscript by Fanny Lowry of Clarkston, Michigan is also included. Anyone interested in a copy of Buck's book should write to Buck Nelson, care of Buck's Mountain View Ranch, Mountain View, Missouri, or to U Forum. One dollar. So if you've heard our Buck Nelson episode, you'll know that Bucky's Christmas letter came from there. But it's always sort of interesting. I always forget that um, U Forum and th- this, you know, the Michigan UFO you know, scene was responsible for publishing Buck Nelson's book and for doing a lot of the the early promotion of him. I guess I always sort of have him sort of cemented there in Missouri where he ran his UFO convention for years after his initial, his initial fame hit. I always sort of forget about Fanny Lowry and the role that those Michigan clubs played in, um, especially the Grand Rapids club and, and U forums staff played in getting Buck Nelson's story out there. 
So that's a little sort of journey through Euphorum for 1956, or at least half of 1956. I don't know how I thought I would get through like three years of Euphorum in an episode, but I thought just maybe just just this little sort of snapshot into this sort of few months in ufology would be interesting. And I think it is because we see, uh, for one thing, the level of cooperation between the various clubs, like I said, it was more like, you know, a fandom rather than, you know, competing publications battling for space on the newsstand or something like that. And we also see the kind of content that was in these newsletters, lots and lots of sighting reports, usually cribbed from wire service reports or other newspapers. So in some ways, these newsletters functioned as sort of keeping the local scene connected, informing people about any local, you know, saucerological events, and also sort of as a mini newspaper clipping service, helping people keep a careful catalog of things that had happened. It's, I was going to say it's not too different from some websites, uh, but I think I'll say it's not too different from what some UFO websites used to be in the earlier days of the web. Um, This is a topic for another time um, and probably another show and definitely another host. But uh, the advent of the social web, whichever year that advent occurred, uh, changed things pretty fundamentally for those who were around at the time. Um, Even the the coming of blogs uh, from the old static sort of manually updated websites was a a fundamental change. But um, the shift from static websites to blogs with commenting built in and from there to the social web was, um, was, was pretty, pretty seismic. Maybe actually that would be a good episode. Maybe Um, I, it, it would be an episode that would involve lots and lots of very biased commentary for me about, um, what I like and what I don't like. And and I'm not sure people want to hear what I like and what I don't like. I I think there's already enough of that, (laughs) already enough of that in there. So, um, Euphorum, Grand Rapids, uh, go Michigan. Thanks as always for listening. The news from Grand Rapids featured contributions from Roberta Evangeline Straith, Sasha Gimlinson, and Simpson J. Hanover III. Music and special sounds are by the Chizo Media Radiophonic Workshop under the direction of Freddie Von Ronke. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III, and both Simpson and Sasha undertook some additional production tasks on this episode. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.